Your business is an asset that can support a thriving life. I believe this, and I'm committed to making this a reality for every entrepreneur and business owner who listens to this podcast. The Women Thriving in Business podcast was created with you in mind. Whether you're thinking about entrepreneurship or you've been in business for a while, this show has inspiration, information, and advice that you can use to thrive in business. Women Thriving in Business features candid and unscripted conversations with entrepreneurs, business experts, authors, and academics who can contribute to your business success. I talk with leaders who have built thriving organizations and who are willing to share both the positive and challenging realities of the entrepreneurial journey. My name is Nikki Rogers. I am a transformation strategist and the host of the Women Thriving in Business podcast. I work with women leaders to develop the mindset, strategies, and relationships necessary to thrive in business. Join me and your fellow thrivers each week on this journey of discovery and success. Welcome Thrivers to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. My guest today is Sarah Walton, who is the founder and CEO of Sarah Walton Coaching. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you, Nikki. This is so great. Yes, excited. Well, Sarah, let's get right into it. So tell us all about your business and then what got you started on your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, it's so funny. I hear that. What got me started as I picture the Sarah-shaped hole that is still in the wall of my last job where I ran out. No, I'm just kidding. But that's <laughs> what I think of, right? When someone's like, how did you start? I'm like, I ran as fast as I could. No. So I think my journey really starts being raised very poor. Mm. Right? In the middle of the country. And when I say poor, I'm talking like there were times where we would have a jar of honey and half a loaf of bread that my mother had made from scratch. The end, like that kind of poor. And as I was growing up, I really wanted to dance. This was something I really, really wanted. And where I was raised in little old Sandy, Utah, there wasn't much to do besides dance, which was fine. But like I'd go to the high school games and I would see the drill team dance at halftime or whatever. And it was just like, oh my gosh, that's all I want. So when I was finally old enough to go try out, I was so excited, right? And I did. And it was like the Paula Abdul, Janet Jackson era. So there was chair throwing. There was a lot of like slamming down on your knees kind of stuff. It was super fun. And I rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and I made the team and I was so excited until I got the letter that said, oh, this is how much the jacket costs. This is how much the shoes are going to cost. This is how much the costume. And I don't know, Nikki, have you ever had one of those like out of body experiences where you almost like watch yourself go through something? And I was like, that's happening right now. Like, oh my God. And I just felt my stomach drop through the floor because I was watching this thing I'd wanted for as long as mm -hmm. I could remember. I mean, I was only 16, right? But at that time, it's all I ever could think about that I'd wanted and it was going to disappear because we couldn't do this. And so I went and got a job at the mall. And for those of you that don't know what a mall is, okay, just think Stranger Things. Yes, yes, it was a lot like that. And I worked on one of those little carts, you know, in the middle of the mall. And I sold tchotchkes and stuff that nobody wanted. But it was fun. It was the 80s. Everybody bought everything. Anyway, came time for my paycheck, right? I got my paycheck. I was so excited because it was enough for the deposit. So I went to the grocery store with my mom and my younger half-brother, who was, I think, five at the time. and went to the grocery store to cash this check. I was so excited. And as we're walking into the grocery store, my mom says, hey, Sarah, the strawberries are on sale. Can we get some? So I'm thinking of the strawberries. I'm thinking of my costumes. And I'm like, okay, we can do both of these things. So I go to the service desk to cash my check, which you used to be able to do at a grocery store. And I get the cash. And I go to find my mom and my younger brother in line at the express checkout. And they're not there. And I can't find them. And I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I see them in line with a cart full of groceries. And it's groceries I know my mom can't pay for right? So it's like milk. It's my brother's favorite breakfast cereal. It's lunch meat for his lunches at school. It's bread. The strawberries are in there. And I'm thinking I can pay for something I've wanted my whole life or I can take care of my family, mm. but I can't do both. And so at 16, I make this decision that I cannot take care of myself and my family. And from that moment on, a 16 year old girl was running my life because I moved to New York City. I was the first woman in my family to go to college. I did all the things. And now I have the beautiful glass office complete with a FICA tree and a whole team. And I'm making all the dollars and I'm freaking miserable because I decided I could take care of my family or I could take care of myself, but I couldn't do mm -hmm. both. 
right? And so that's sort of how it ended up showing up throughout my life. I joke that there's a Sarah-shaped hole in the wall, but there was a day where my daughter, by now I'd had two kids, I'm married, glass office, the whole thing. And my daughter called and said, mommy, I miss you. And I'm sitting there hearing the clock tick in my office. You know, that like, which is kind of nice sometimes. But at that moment, it was like, these are seconds I'm never getting back ever. I can never get these back. This is the only non-renewable resource I have access to is my time. And it is going. Mm. And I got up and that was the day that I left. And what has fueled my work as a business coach now, and my tagline is I put more money in the hands of more women, is because I never want another woman to go through what my mother went through that day. I don't want anyone to go through what I went through that day. And that we have at this moment in time decided as a society that money is the most important tool we have access to. And it is, and we cannot like that or argue about it, but it's kind of a fact. And I adamantly believe, not that there's a big bad out there somewhere, but I adamantly believe the way our society is structured is is absolutely designed to keep money out of the hands of certain humans and the whole entire swath of women being one of those. And the idea that women couldn't have their own credit cards until 1976, we couldn't have our own mortgages without a man's signature until 1976. This is not that long ago. I think that so many women to this day have that sort of in our psyches. We're not supposed to handle it, right? Oh, I'm just not good at that. Or, oh, I can't believe I spent so much money on that. I'm so crazy. Like that kind of an attitude versus, yeah, I spent that much money. There was an artist who made that bag. An artist made those shoes. Absolutely, I'm paying for first class because somebody designed those seats. There's a chef who came up with the meals. Those flight attendants are highly trained and they deserve to be paid. Having that attitude towards money and understanding that, of course, we have a right to participate in the circulation of money on this planet and sort of stepping into the power of that, all of that is the driving force behind my business, which was your very short question that I gave you a very long answer to. (laughs) But there you are. You touch on a lot of different things. You touch on what shapes our money story. So you talk about your experience at 16 and saying like, well, wait a minute, I have a choice to make here and I choose to sacrifice. I think sometimes the guilt, I would say, of being a woman that has accomplished a lot of things, but having to sacrifice maybe family time. And so that often comes with some measure of guilt Or again, this trade-off of, well, I'm doing this because it is going to support the life that my children should have. Maybe also because you did grow up poor, you want your children to have things that you didn't have. So they don't have to make those choices. So let's go back to that day when you're sitting in your office. Can you give us a little bit of context around why your daughter was calling you? Like what was going on kind of in your work life that led up to that phone call? And then specifically what launched you on your entrepreneurial path. Have you thought about being an entrepreneur? All that. So let's go back to kind of that day where you had to make this life-changing decision. No, actually, you know, you're the first person to ever ask me that. And I so appreciate that because it is the moment, right? It's the moment when we're like, oh, I'm going to take control of this. So I think I'd always wanted to own my own business. I mean, I would make like hair scrunchies when I was like eight, nine, 10, and I'd go to school and sell them. I would do other people's nails. Like I would do anything I could think of without understanding that that was entrepreneurial, right? It was just, Mm -hmm. I'd pick something I love and someone would pay me to do it. I was like, sure, I'll be there 10 seconds. So I think that was always there. And then I fell in love, I think, with the whole self-development world. This was sort of, I got kind of lucky, but in New York City, little girl from Utah that I was, I landed this amazing job at a startup, which was another introduction to this entrepreneurial world. I was seeing financial projections. I was understanding how to hire and fire. I was looking at all of these different models. And when we would go to venture capitalists and how do you ask for this money and why are they giving it to you and not to them? And like just sort of watching all this happen. But what we were actually doing was digitizing Marianne Williamson's entire log of talks, which was crazy, you know, and I had already read A Return to Love. And my dad was a big fan of hers. And we were doing all this. And I'm like, now I'm in the recording studio with Marianne Williamson. And I'm like, how did this happen? So I'm listening to her talk about all of these things, all of this ability that we have to take control. And I'm watching this financial stuff. And I'm looking that, wait a second, this could be a job. You can teach people stuff. And that's a job. Like that was the first time that ever occurred to me. So that led up to that moment. And then we started working with Agape and Reverend Michael Beckwith in Los Angeles. And we started digitizing all of their content. And if you don't know who he is, he's one of the awesome representatives on The Secret. He has a really great YouTube channel, by the way. Listening to all of his talks and what their idea of prosperity and abundance and 
listening to that church and digitizing all of that. So I had this kind of like spiritual, personal development world that I'd seen be so valuable to people that they would pay for it. And Mm -hmm. I kind of went back to my scrunchies and I'm like, wait, that was valuable enough for people to pay for it. This is valuable enough for people to pay for it. My babysitting services were valuable enough for people to pay for it, right? And understanding that as long as we're providing something of value, people will pay for it. And that day I had made it to the really senior executive level, which was awesome. And I was now what's called a product developer in tech, meaning I would look at what the business needed and look at how the page needed to be laid out. Where did the buttons need to go so people could click and follow easily through the process we wanted them to take in order to get our products and services and understanding those business needs. But then I also had to run the tech team that would build it. The time my husband used to be like, what do you do? Like, I don't understand. And I was like, don't worry, I'll always be employed because business and technology can't talk to each other. And I can speak both languages. We're good forever. He's like, oh, okay, okay. All right, all right. So, but that was really what I did. And I had this gorgeous team. I worked with some of the most wonderful people. And at that time, I was trying to take everything I'd learned through that startup and through all of my own personal journeys. I was always taking seminars. I was always reading a book. I was always taking online courses in personal development. And I would do what I could from that space. I would hire pregnant women. I had a team of all women. Like I was just doing whatever I could from that position to alter what I'd seen my whole life, to take as much control as I could and use the tools at my disposal to make the difference I wanted to make. Except I was miserable personally. Mm -hmm. I'd leave the house at six and I'd come home at 7 p.m. So 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. I only saw my children in their pajamas. We had an extraordinary nanny whom I just loved. I called her my wife constantly. I was like, thank God, because I mean, I was never here. I was never home. And that was not the way I'd pictured myself being a mom. Mm. And I really wanted to be a mom. That was like on the life list before I'd met the man I married. I was like, I don't think I have a husband. I think he's been hit by a bus. So I'm just going to go to sperm bank. I'll see y'all later. Because being a mom was like not, that was not on the table for discussion. I was here to be a mom. And here I was doing this in a way that didn't work for me. And so Mm -hmm. something triggered at that moment when she was like, mommy, I miss you. I was like, what the heck am I doing? And it's so great that I'm making this outward impact and I'm doing everything I can over here. It wasn't my thing. I didn't create it. I didn't wake up every day so excited to go do it. And I was like, I have one life. And I that's why my podcast is called the Game on Girlfriend podcast, because this is the game. The game is on. You don't get a do over here. This is it. This is not your practice life. You don't get a do over here. Let's go. And I always sort of had that sense of urgency. And that day, something just popped, I think, literally between hearing her voice and the clock ticking and the angst that had been building all those years. I literally could not do it. I was like, I'm going to get sick. Something's going to happen. Already my stomach hurt all the time that like you are not living your life. You are living the life everyone else wants you to live. Right. I just couldn't do it another day. I just don't know how else to describe. I hope I answered your question, Nikki, but that's the God's honest truth. I just couldn't do it another day. Yeah. When you leave your office and you go home and you say to your husband, like, I'm quitting my job or other people in your life, what was the response? I think that's what a lot of women may be fearful of is their support systems is really changing their identity. So how did those conversations go down when you said, this is it, I'm done? Not well, I'm not Mm going to lie. So for anybody who's scared, oh my God, I feel you 100%. I mean, we almost got divorced that day. Like literally, I was like, I'm so sorry. You can have a dead wife or you can have me because this is where we are. And it took a while. Like that was a massive chasm. And that's on me. I mean, I kept saying, I really want to be able to quit. I really want to be able to be home more. And he's like, well, too bad. We have to have this money, right? And I get that. But at some point, I couldn't take it anymore. And so I feel that for a lot of people. And I know in my personal coaching, my one-on-one coaching with people who are running businesses, spouses inevitably come in. They can't not because there's so much that we have around money ourselves. So much of that was his fear around, but what if it runs out? And so he's dealing with that. And I come in and say, well, it's about to run out. Of course, that's going to spark massive fear on his end. And I think the more that we can have compassion for where other people are coming from, the more we can sort of say, I got that that's your reaction. You're going to have to go deal with that, which is very hard to do in a primary relationship. But it's like, I got it, but we both have to be whole people or this isn't going to work anyway. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to deal with what this is bringing up for both of us. And we can choose to do that separately or we can choose to do it together. But there comes a moment for all of us. And I think I would have been the same way if he'd come home and been like, I can't do this another day. I would have like, all right, what are we doing? We're going to figure this out. And eventually that comes out, but it really isn't how you approach it. And I think looking back on that for anybody who's like, okay, I really want to do this. What do I do? Learn from my mistake, which was I talked about it, but I didn't create a plan around it. 
Mm. I was too scared to create a plan. So one day it literally got to the point where I'm like, I cannot. And so I left myself no options. So don't do that to yourself. You don't have to do it the way I did it and rip off the Band-Aid and have a U-shaped hole in the wall. I think that was the biggest mistake there was not actually creating a plan and including. And then I think the other thing goes back to for anybody who's really scared, there's two pieces to that fear, I believe. And you really said it, Nikki, which is the identity, the shift in identity and what that does to us. I remember answering the door three weeks later at two o'clock on a Tuesday and I was like, I'm working. I'm still important. Looking back on that, I'm like, Sarah Walton. But it really is the truth of how we attach to outside titles, outside names, outside identities. I didn't even want that identity. I would have happily been a stay-at-home mom taking care of my kids. I would have eventually launched a business. There's no way I wouldn't have. But what's wrong with raising the next generation of humans? Like, why are we acting like that's not worthy? And the reason we act like it's not worthy is because it's not financially compensated. And so we don't appreciate it here in this world. This is what I'm going back to. Like, women aren't supposed to handle money. We're just supposed to be quiet and do the most important work for society without pay. And that's that whole thing. I got caught up in all of that. So there's that external fear of what are people going to think of me? Mm -hmm. And part of that for anybody who's just launching is, oh, I'm so scared to launch. I'm so scared to launch. You're not scared to launch. You're scared to appear small. Like you only have three people following you on Instagram. I got it. That's the actual fear is like, oh my God, my ex-colleagues, people I went to high school, my spouse, my friends are going to think I'm such an idiot. That's the actual fear. And boy, do I get that. But everyone has to start there. Everyone does. When I launched my newsletter, there were 15 people on it and 14 of them were my cousins. Like, come on. That's the way we all start. It's so funny. We're talking about this because just last night, my dad's in town. He lives in LA and I'm on the East Coast, but he's in town for the holidays. And I actually turned to him yesterday. I just launched a program and I was like, this is so cool. I can see in my system who clicked to see the page. I don't know who any of these people are. Oh my God. You guys, it's been 12 years. Come on. That's how long this takes. And we want to honor that journey. Once in a while, there's a quote unquote overnight success. It's rare. It's very, very rare. And so if we can understand there's the fear of identity and that's internal for us. Women also go through this after divorce. Mm-hmm. We go through this after big breakups. We go through this after we become mothers. There's an identity crisis and that's totally understandable. You just want to honor that that's where you are. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when we try to pretend it's fine that we cause problems. You go, I'm having a freaking identity crisis because I've attached me to outside labels. And just saying that can help you start to heal that and go, oh, I don't give a rat's behind what the outside labels are. I want this. Once we can make that shift, the power starts to flip. And that's the same power that flips when we talk about money and first class and everything I said, that power flips to like, no, 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 no. I'm pushing money around this planet to the things I value. I'm making sure that flight attendant can send their kids to college. I'm totally down for that. So I can have a more pleasant experience for five hours. Sign me the frick up. That's where you want to be. That's the power. And then the other side is recognizing that it's also sort of the identity at work that you're actually afraid to be seen as starting small. I love that you named this scared to appear small. I think that is so true. And I think in today's social media driven world, you think that someone who shows up in your feed started off like that. Right. It's so true because they look large and you're like, well, I just learned about them. So they must have just popped out of the oven ready. Right. I think there's a quote that says, like, it takes 10 years to become an overnight sensation. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you don't see all the things that have come before. You just see like now this highly polished, very curated image and you want to strive for that. I honestly can't get there without having done all the other things. Because otherwise you just look like you're mimicking someone else. But in order for you to truly be that, you actually have to grow into that. You have to develop into that. But that's very hard, I think, from an ego, from a pride, thinking of like you're putting things out there constantly and it's not hatching fire, right? Yeah. But it's all about the consistency. It's all about the kind of the persistence that allows you to get there. That's a challenge, right? Especially when you are trying on a new identity, when you go from kind of a big deal at work and now you're not. That's right. I love what you're saying because it's telling the truth about that can be embarrassing, right? Like, I don't want anyone to think I care that much, but of course you care that much. We all care that much. It's hard to not, right? It's like, how else do you measure? What is the other measurement? And I know there's plenty of people who are, generating great revenue without all the fanfare. It's like one or the other, right? You're like, am I making money? Are people seeing me? And obviously making money is more important than who seeds me. But when you're first starting out, 
one of these has to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. You're like, please, either one penny drop, right? Yeah, absolutely. You talk about this identity. And I know when we talked before, you talked a bit about how your mother was raised and some of the things that she went through. And can you tell us a little bit about how seeing the things that your mother went through and whatever you want to share about that kind of spurred you to this being very achievement oriented and very much like, no, I'm not going to be a stay-at-home mom because working is what I do because I want to be independent. I want to have this level of control. So can you just talk us a little bit about that? Because I think it's important to show how the models that we see in our lives really drive a lot of our decision-making, even unconsciously. So can you share a bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, I was raised Mormon. So for anyone who's like, well, she said Sandy, Utah. Does that? Yes, that's what that means. So Sandy, Utah, just so you know, if it sounds familiar, it's the town Elizabeth Smart was taken from. And it's also where they filmed Big Love. So if you're feeling like, I think I know that place. It's weird. It's like some little tiny town, you know, half an hour south of Salt Lake City, but a lot of people know where it is. So my mother was raised very strict Mormon. Actually, my great grandparents were polygamists. We're like that, that Mormon not the fundamentalist Mormon that are still polygamous, but this idea that creating a home and having as many children as possible is desirable. Like that's your job as a woman. My mom actually was just the most phenomenal artist. Oh my God. Wow. I haven't said that in a long time. I almost teared up. Unbelievable artist. I still am in awe. She would do portraits with colored pencils of people. And it was like the person was jumping out of the page. It was unreal. And at 13, 14, she was hired by like McDonald's and Burger King to do their holiday paintings in the windows. I mean, this incredible thing, but no one encouraged her. No one said, hey, you know what? You could probably get into Juilliard, which she could have, especially being from Utah, right? Like she probably could have gotten financial aid. She could have done all these things. And no one ever said that to her. And she got married at 19. She had her first child at 20. She had me when she was 25. She got divorced at 26. So 26, she's got two kids. She's a single mom and no encouragement again. I think she's two classes short of having a college degree. She never finished. And what was important to her, I remember, I think, you know, I don't know all the logistics. I was very young, but I think between child support and she worked as an assistant to a lawyer for years who would let me come to work with her. I mean, I remember hanging out under her desk like this man was amazing that did this with her, helped her create all this, but watching her constantly struggle. Right. And like you were saying, role modeling, it wasn't even like she would go, oh, my God, we have no money. We just knew we had no money. Like it wasn't a conversation. Nobody said it. But, you know, when you're watching your mom, oh, my God, I'm going to sound like I'm from the sound of music. But when you're watching your mom create your Halloween costume out of your curtains, you're like, hmm, maybe we don't have money watching this happen. And then she got married again to somebody who was not very kind, but had a lot of money and just up and left one day. So now I've got a half brother. Now we've got more kids in the house. And again, no recourse, no money coming in. And just watching how she kept doing that. And this idea that, oh, if there's not a man, there's financial trouble. Mm. And I think that sparked something in me. And keep in mind, this was the whole community around me as well. I mean, the town I grew up in, I think it was 80% Mormon. The stats might have changed since then, but it was around that as I was being raised there. I mean, everybody was in this conversation of how many kids do you want? What do you want your kids' names to? That was the only conversation I heard amongst my girlfriends. That was it. That was the job. And that was probably why being a mom was so important to me. But the idea that you would work or go to college before that or be in love with some sort of topic at school or be great at acting or go out and sew or do anything like that was not a thing. Hmm. You only do that if that benefits your family. And you do it around the time that you're making dinner for everyone else. And I think I just always saw that. And of course, that's going to have an impact on me. But at the same time, my father now lived in LA while I was being raised in Utah because they got divorced. And so every other month, I could go to LA and see a whole other world. And I think that's part of what sparked this in me to be like, wait a second, this is one way to live. Okay, there's another one in my little mind, right? There were two. There was this one or this one, right? Not recognize them. Of course, there are thousands of ways to live your life, obviously. But at that young age, that's what I saw. And my stepmother, my father's second wife, was a screenwriter in LA, watching her work, watching her pitch her work, watching her get excited, watching her create female characters who were strong. All these things I got to see. I had this window to a whole other world that, quite frankly, my 65 other cousins did not. And that was why I think I was the first one to go to college. I think there are now five of us, which is awesome. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of entrepreneurship in my family, like watching all these strong women sort of pop up through this. But I think that overarching idea that we were supposed to be quiet and do the things that a good, a good, a good woman does, you know, that and we all hear that there's 
Every race has that. Every society has that. Every different culture has that. Every insidious mini culture has that. And it's always the women. Be a good girl. Be a good woman. Be selfless. And how much we reward that in every culture, in every race. There's that underpinning of little woman, just be good. Don't rock the boat. When we do, boy, are we labeled. There's the emotional woman, there's the overspender, there's the trophy wife, right? All these things that were labeled and the men are not. And again, I don't mean to start some gender war or something. I don't mean that at all, but it's like, we've got to look at what we've been dealt. And it was one of the reasons I was so grateful for 2020 on so many levels or all of the cultural conversations we got to have about what we've just accepted as so that is not as so. And it's going to be up to us to either outwardly speak it and break it (laughs) or just do it. Both of those are valid. And that we have this massive opportunity right now, I believe, to get this done and to do it in a way that works for us. Right. It's so interesting as you're talking about those different labels. I'm just going to talk about kind of capitalistic society and just traditional roles of men going out and making money and accumulating these things. Why? To attract a woman, right? The flip side of this is this kind of stigma around like, particularly women and how they approach money, right? Either, you know, you talk about the trophy wife or the gold digger or just these different tropes that is a very disingenuous, right? Yes. And it kind of feeds on itself just to think about that. I truly believe like money is energy. And so when you talk about this idea of using money as a way of honoring the work that people do, How do you get to that from where you were? What was the work that you had to do? Was the mindset shift that you had to do in order to get from, well, I don't have a lot. Money is for essentials or I have to save or I have to be very judicious with how I spend my money to this more expansive idea of I deserve nice things. But there is this idea of I'm supporting others in society who provide something of value. So talk to us a bit about how you've moved along in your thinking and evolved your thinking in that way. Boy, I'm really like racking my brain because this is a 20-year journey. This was not like an overnight one day I had an epiphany and I was like, I understand. (laughs) So not that way. Several things happened. I called off a wedding when I was 26. I was going to marry a really great guy who was just like a really great guy, just not my guy. He was making an extraordinary amount of money on Wall Street. And I remember when I decided not to marry him, so many people were like, just marry him and get divorced later. At least you'll get the money. And I was like, what is happening? Like That was the first time I was like, what? I couldn't wrap my head around that. But I mean, literally, I would say probably a dozen different people said that to me, all women. And I was like, okay, something's weird here. This is straight. That's not my money. He earned that and he should have that. And like I supported us while he was doing what he needed to do to get that done. And I think that's freaking amazing. It wasn't like now it's mine. And I was watching that. And I don't mean to say that like, I'm so great. I just was watching it. I'm like, why do I have this mindset? And other people don't. What is that? And understanding that the people who didn't, it was a deep seated fear that as a woman, I wouldn't be able to make that much. And they're watching me give it away. And they're like, but, 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 but what about, we're all going to, and understanding that fear. And I'm like, where the hell is this coming from? These women are fine. What is this? And so I really started to study, to be honest. And I think the first book that really changed my mind, oh my God, I'm so old, but check it out if you feel like it. It's very thin. It's called The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Ecker. And a lot of the book, he's going to be selling his seminar. So just hang on to your hats and glasses for that, okay? Which I did go to. And that also really helped. And in that seminar, I calculated what I would need to make in order to be financially free. And that was the first time I put pen to paper and said, wait, these are numbers. I can figure this out. Because I think before that, money was like this big weird thing that some people understood that I couldn't understand, right? And then all of a sudden it was like, no, this is fourth grade math. What? And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I have access to this. And that sounds so silly. But that was like, I think the first mindset shift to like, wait a second, I can do this. I can figure this out. That moment, just reading that book, I remember where I was. I was right outside the Met. That sounds so crazy, but I would go there on the weekends and just sit in Central Park and read. And I remember exactly where I was when I read that book in one sitting. And I felt like everything just changed. It was like, oh. And I think one of my biggest takeaways from that book was he talked about how generous and kind and loving really wealthy people are and Mm -hmm. that we don't view them that way. And I remember them like watching TV and movies. Everyone who's wealthy is an ass. They have to be slimy. They are such, and we get that message in society constantly. And then I started asking, well, who does that benefit? Right. Who does that benefit if we think they're jerks? Well, I'm not going to go make money 
if I think I have to be an asshole to make money. Like that, sorry, I swore. That was something that sort of hit me as like, we're being taught this right. pretty explicitly. <laughs> it was like, oh, and that's going to keep me from making money. So I started questioning why I would think that bad people make money or you have to be bad to make money when I knew my ex-fiance was not a bad person, right? And see, my dad wasn't a bad person. My stepmom wasn't a bad person. I'm like, no, 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 no. Something's off here. And that sort of started to help me question what we were seeing in society at large. I think all of us were mm-hmm. seeing it just to sort of question that. And then it was just this nonstop search for my own relationship to money. How did this happen? When did this happen? What happens after the money leaves my hands? That was a big question for me too. And so I do this now when I teach seminars or conferences is I'll get a $100 bill and I'll put it to the person in the first row on the right side and I'll say, pass it to the person to the left, right? And they pass it all the way down the whole row and then I get it back. And I'll say, isn't this amazing? It passed everyone's hands. It never lost value. And it Mm -hmm. added value to every single hand it touched. Isn't that amazing? And that's when people go, oh my God, when I pay somebody, I'm making them happy. And then they get to decide what to do with it. So I always tell my clients, like, you know, my daughter's dance teacher, he like volunteers his time with autistic kids to teach them dance. That's why I chose him to be her dance teacher, right? So you pay me, you're taking care of autistic kids too. Like this is how this works and it never loses value and it never disappears. And that's my favorite thing about the stock market and all those myths. This much money was lost. It just van- I like, didn't vanish. It moved hands. Somebody mm. sold a stock and somebody bought it. <laughs> like, right. It's not, it didn't go out into the ether. And this idea that it's this esoteric weird thing we can't hold on to, that really started to upset me. And I was like, no, 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 no. Anytime you feel like you're not in the chain of abundance, you don't have money flowing, go sit in a Starbucks and watch how much money is exchanging hands 24 seven. And if we have more money in the hands of more women, we're going to have more of a say of where that's getting pushed. And that matters. That really, really matters. When I say all the time, I was giving a talk in Florida, right? When the Ukraine war started and I'm like talking to the audience and I'm like, they are not here with me. What is happening? Like, you know, when you can just feel, I was like, what is going on? And I was like, oh, it was, I was teaching people how to sell. And I was like, oh, do you guys feel bad about being here when there's a war going on? They were like, like every hand went up. They were like, yeah, this is horrible. I was like, oh, I got it. Okay. So this is really why you need to be here right now. Because who's leading that war? What's happening here is this is all about money and it's all about men. Again, not to disparage men at all. But if we were to put this amount of money into the hands of women, there's no effing way we would be dropping bombs on other people's children. And here we are with this technology to drop a bomb within inches of where we wanted to go. Inches! We can't somehow get water and food and medicine to the children who need it on this planet? I'm calling BS on that. There's no way. It's just the money isn't in the hands of women because we would drop water, medicine, and food on other people's children, not bombs. And that's why it's important that we as women understand that we do have a role to play when it comes to money and that it is so important that we start talking about this. And it's so important that we are in the room where it matters, as they say in Hamilton, and that we get our voices heard. And right now, that takes money. Three years from now, who knows? It might be bananas. I don't know. But right now, it's money. And so we need to not be afraid of it. And we need to not buy into this idea that we're somehow bad with it, or we have to marry into it, or we can't earn it ourselves. That's all very old. And I think it's time to shut that. Right. We could spend hours uh, (laughs) unpacking your point as well, taken around making decisions about how we spend our money actually does have an impact on the world. And it's not just about fattening corporate coffers, right? You can do the things that you love to do, share that currency, but also you can make decisions. Like you can do business with companies that are doing the right thing. You can help shape trajectory of a small business Mm -hmm. by just how you spend your money. I want to talk a little bit more about your business. So as you think about the 12 years you've been in business, what have been some of the top challenges that you face either as you were getting started or as you got into the rhythm of your business? I think the same ones everyone faces, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. There's three people and a dog watching this or that or whatever. And I think that comes up every time. So we just launched a YouTube channel and it's like, oh my gosh, someone goes there and there's three people and a dog. It's going to happen every time. It's like when we try something new or we go out after these things, I have the same worries and concerns and ego drives that everybody has. This is very normal. I think we all go through it and I remind people of that all the time. I think the other challenges have been the idea that this is not a hobby. I think really believing in myself that I'm a really, really good coach and I'm very unique. You know, I don't have a set program when someone signs up with me. I work the person. 
and really owning that and not being embarrassed. People are like, well, what's your process? And I'm like, you? <laughs> You're my process. Like, I can't tell you until we get into your limiting beliefs and what you just thought and the fight you just had with your spouse or the way that you just talked to yourself in the shower this morning. Like, that's what we've got to get to. So owning that process that it's mine and that I've organically created that. Also, I get frustrated when I set a big goal and I don't meet it. You know what I mean? Like I missed the financial goal we had for the business last year by like $10,000. Son of a gun, you know, like that. I'll get super frustrated. And I think I can get what I call the efforts, like everybody else where it's like, oh, that's it. I'm working at Starbucks. I've had it. I'm out. I don't want to think about this anymore. Like I think I just did that three months ago. I had one of those days where I'm like, that's it. I'm going to go work at a place like the office. I don't even care. You know, that idea that a paycheck just is magically deposited. Then it's so funny. I have an accountant I just met with this as we're recording this, right? It's the turn of the year and she's an accountant. And so she drained her account in December. So she didn't show quote unquote profit for the business, right? She bought stuff. She did all this stuff. She's like, I'm a failure. I'm a I was like, oh, you know, oh, it's January. Everybody just did what you did. We're all like, oh my God, are we all dead in the water? And just those things that's always going to happen. And I think I really feel the struggles with that. And then I think the biggest shift for me was really hiring a team and getting a team in place. So I have video editors who were constantly working on Sarah Uncut and the video podcast. I have a podcast editor. I have a copy editor. I have a copywriter, which was so effing hard for me to do because I love to write. And one of my favorite things, I still write all of my own newsletters and emails and stuff. And my favorite thing is when someone will write back and go, oh my gosh, I can hear you when I read your writing. I'm like, yes, that's the best way I get so excited. So to turn over copywriting for the YouTube channel and for some of the Instagram stuff, it was like, oh, my baby, that was really hard. But I think there's also the mindset shift once you have a team of doing what the business needs you to do, right? Really releasing any ego around it. It's like, if I had a boss who was paying me to work today, what would she expect me to accomplish? And what does the business need done today? And I think that for me, it's so funny as a business coach, right? But for me, like you said, we have to experience this and expand into it in order to show up the way we see people show up. I think that experience of really being responsible for somebody else's income, like someone's expecting their paycheck every single month and that that has to happen and that my 401k needs to get capped out every single year. Those sorts of responsibilities and turning it into a revenue producing business that supports people. That shift was extraordinary. And it also really helped me release some of that ego-driven stuff of like, okay, that video bombed. I think I suck. I'm going to go work at Target. Those moments that come back, it's like, no, you're running a business. What's the data? What happened? Why did people not want to watch that? What's going on for you? Were you off that day? And really understanding and sort of investigating it that way so that we can help more people. Because if I get wrapped up in how I look or what's happening or all that kind of nonsense, I can't produce. We can't help more people because then it's about me. Right. So my alternative job is at Trader Joe's. Because I love that you know where it is. I love it. I love it. Yes. They're so awesome at Trader Joe's, aren't they? They, they just seem happy. Like <laughs> The good one, Nikki. That's, that's my alternative job. My friends are always like, they should hire you to do commercials because I'm always like, okay, what I found at Trader Joe's today. And they're like, <laughs> So that's my alternative job. I think when you talk about this idea of thinking about what the business needs you to do, it just struck me that as an entrepreneur, you actually have multiple bosses, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have employees, like you have a responsibility to them. Mm -hmm. If you have vendors, you have a responsibility to them because honestly, they are coming along this journey with you mm -hmm. and you have to generate revenue in order to be able to pay your employees, to be able to pay your vendors. So you have multiple people that you have to answer to even as your quote unquote own boss. So yes. this idea of team, it almost inverts itself, right? So even though you're making decisions and they're reporting to you, but you're basically the base of the pyramid, right? Like right. you're supporting all these folks who support you. Yeah, that idea just came back mine. Like, as you know, I think that's brilliant. And again, I mean, what we do have autonomy over is who those vendors are. Exactly. Right. right? I have a lot of single yeah. moms on my team. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I get to choose that. Right. And that right. is the cool part. But yeah, that level of responsibility, I think it makes the business grow up. It makes us grow up. And I think that's a good thing because so often right. I hear, oh, my husband thinks this is a hobby or my friends don't understand what I do. And it's like, no, I get that. Like, I totally get that. And we're going to work on you 
So you start to view it differently, they will too. Right, yeah. right. And I think one of the important things as when people shift from being an employee to an entrepreneur is really having that plan for the day. So, I mean, it's almost like a lot of people treat it as a hobby because if you're starting a business and you've never started a business before, you don't know where to start. Absolutely. So it looks a lot like whatever you thought you were passionate about or fascinated around that you're like, okay, I'm going to start a business around this. Yes, it looks like something that looks like fun, right? And so Mm -hmm. you have to figure out how do you mature this? How do you go from this looks like fun, I'm making scrunchies for, you know, my friend (laughs) to wait a minute, I need to be thinking about where do I source my fabric? What are the shipping times? Okay, how do I figure out how to advertise this to people? How do I ship this to people who are outside of my immediate area that I can drop this off at? I mean, then it starts to, you have to think about it differently. And I think for a lot of people, if you're running, screaming at a corporate, you just want to do something fun, right? And that's fine. But I think you do have to make that shift from this is a hobby to a business. And I think that's a very conscious shift. Mm -hmm that you have to seek out. So I think that can be a challenge for folks who are going into something that they liked and they were good at. And now you got to make a business out of it. That's right. Yeah. And I do think that that is also a conscious decision. If you really love something so much, you could do it all day, every day. That may or may not be a good business idea for you. Like really sitting with that and understanding, am I going to be able to be objective about this and actually look at this as a service, as something that I'm giving to the world? that they pay me for. And I think it's really wise that you said that. I was just talking, I just had my son's soccer jerseys made into a quilt. It was so cool. Like best business idea, right? There was this awesome woman in Colorado, shipped off all the jerseys, got back a blanket. I'm like, this is the best business ever. But of course I'm picking her brain. I'm like, how'd you start? What'd you do? And she's like, no, I had to be really careful. It wouldn't take the joy out of it for me. And I'm like, there it is. Mm -hmm. That's all, that is like such an important question. And we had such a great time chatting, but I was like, that's so great because so many people who start a business, they don't ask that question. Am I still going to find joy in this? Right. Is it still going to make my socks roll up and down when I do have to think about profit margins, when I do have to think about where I'm sourcing, when I do have to think about whether or not I advertise, like you want to think, is this going to fuel that joy or is it going to hamper it? And so I think it's really wise. I'm so glad you brought that up, Nikki, because not everybody does. I think that was really smart. Right. What are some of your greatest accomplishments? Oh, heavens. My children, obviously, for sure. I also think being the first woman to graduate college, that's still something I'm kind of like, how the heck did I do that? Like, that's crazy. I'm like, with what gumption did I do that? So those are really great. And then I think really fighting for my business the way I've had to, I would say specifically over the last three years, like through COVID, you know, I launched something called Coffee with Coach where I went live every single day for free um, Mm. for four months. And I just was like, whatever you guys need, I will answer questions. I am your coach. You don't have to hire me. Let's do this. And that absolutely changed my business. But I had to fight for that. That was like, Sarah Walton, get up. The world needs you, get up. And so I had to answer that. And I'm so happy I did. And I don't think even in the time I really realized what I was doing, I just felt compelled to answer this call I was getting of like, people need help. They're stuck at home and they're freaking out. Go support. So very proud of that. And we still do coffee with coach once a month. And I think the Abundance Academy, we have just quietly launched this. It's invite only, but it'll be launching later this year in 2023 and really helping women transform their relationship to money. It's a year long program. And I am beyond stunned at what people are doing in there. Like people are like, I'm making 25K a month. And they have, I'm like, oh my gosh, I did so funny. I'm like, it's really working. Like you're actually listening to what I'm telling you. Oh my God. So it's so great to see. It. And I consider that a huge accomplishment because I think What makes a great coach is someone who's able to alter human behavior. (laughs) It is not easy. We humans don't like to alter our behavior. So I get super excited when I see those results happening for people. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's happening. It's working. And it's so funny. 13 years later, I'm still saying that like, no, this is real. This is really causing results. This is really doing stuff for people. So I get really excited. I get really proud of that. I do consider that an accomplishment just to continue to fight for that during those days where I'm like, what am I doing? this is so stupid. Nobody cares. No one's listening. I should go work at Starbucks. Like those moments that I fought through those to get to this one. And there will be more, I'm sure, because we're all human. I'm really proud of that. I love that. To go back to something you said about your process and really working the person, right? And so I feel like that's so freeing because a lot of the coaching, they tell you, you have to have a process and what's your three-step process? And I think even when I'm working with folks, 
it really is about what they need. Yes. I start with a framework, but it is a very intuitive approach around understanding what the specific needs of a client are, their specific mm-hmm. fears, their specific challenges, things that they've been successful at. Because sometimes people can be very high in one area, very accomplished in one area, and very underdeveloped in others. Yeah. And like understanding like how to meet people where they are and then work on the things that we need to work on. Or you know what, say, you know what, you are really strong in this area. Let's work on that. Let's keep that going. And maybe you need to build a team around these things that you're honestly never going to be without a lot of work. <laughs> right. Oh, I love it. Yeah. But that is a process. That is a process. What you just outlined is absolutely a process. But what I love about what you shared is how much you let your intuition guide that. I almost feel like you can't buy that. You know what I mean? Because I think business success, it's 20% strategy. Like you got to have a strategy, sure. Like you got to sell stuff and it's got to turn a profit, right? But it's 80% mindset. Mm-hmm. So that's why everybody's always like, Sarah, you give away everything in your videos. I'm like, yeah, because until they deal with their mindset, it's not going to do anything. Like it's great. It can get people started. That's awesome. And I'm so happy to provide that service. But like, I can give you the best thing in the whole world, like the most killer strategy. And if you haven't dealt with why you think it's not going to work for you, it's not going to work for you. That can seem kind of scary or weird, but I just happen to think it's true. We have so much that's at work in us. Like imagine me not dealing with what happened when I was 16. Like not being honest about the fact that scared the heck out of me. And then I made a decision that ran my entire life. If I hadn't realized that, it would still be running my life. Right. And who knows, I might have cancer. I might be a bazillionaire through corporations, but I might very well have cancer. I think the honesty around that, I think that's something I wish more people in our industry did, Nikki, was tell the truth about the humanity behind business. And also this fallacy among coaches that, well, because I'm a coach, I'm perfect. It's like, no, 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 no. No work lifts you up out of your humanity. <laughs> you and I can get the call tomorrow that we have cancer. You and I can get the call tomorrow that our kid's in jail. You and I can get the call tomorrow that someone we love is hurt. Like, nah, we are all on this planet together. And I might know certain things about stuff, but you know certain things about other things. And the more that we can share that and honor that shared humanity in that piece and trust our intuition and use our specific different skills and talents to support each other, the better off we'll all be. But this weird, I'm a guru, I know everything thing, it does not work for me. (laughs) I always laugh because I can't remember who it is. There's a woman and she's like a love coach or something, but she's been divorced like five times. That has not stopped her from <laughs> being a bazillionaire and being a love coach, right? Yeah, she probably knows a lot. I'll give her that. <laughs> They're still trying it. So like... <laughs> she's still going for number six, right? Like that's some tenacity. That's some grit. Right. right? Like, and right, oh my gosh. And along the way. So I'm like, okay, you have lots of experiences to share. So <laughs> clearly, yeah, no, but it's like, and the trusting of that. And I think too, for anybody who's looking for a coach, I think I always do this for my own coaches too, because I always have a coach as well. But just looking at, we get to take what works and we get to leave what doesn't, right? It doesn't have to be that the human in front of us is perfect for us to be able to get a boatload of information that we need in order to further our own lives. I love that you shared that actually. It's actually really funny, but it's true because you could probably learn a lot from her. Yeah, I think for people who are looking for coaches, look for people who have done what you want to do. Yes. Yeah, it's very easy nowadays to hang out a shingle for whatever, but, you know, be very discerning and like, have they done what you want to do? Again, they maybe not perfectly, but I think the best coaches are very transparent about what they're going through, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the challenges that they face. And so I think working with someone who's done what you want to do, who's not done it perfectly, who's not sitting in this place of judgment, but really like... I've been there. I've done that. Here's what I tried. You know what? And that didn't work. And this is the thing I tried the second time and this did work. And I think if you're working with someone who can help you along your journey, that's what's key and important. It's everything. Yeah. Love it. Well, Sarah, I always ask my guests two questions. So the first question is, what are one or two songs that are on your power playlist and why? Okay. You're going to laugh at me. Everybody's going to laugh at me. Okay, so there's a song in Wicked <laughs> called Defying Gravity. Mm-hmm. Makes me cry. Love that one. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that just always is sort of in the back of my head. I mean, there's many, 
I'm a Broadway person. I didn't realize this about myself, but also for Moulin Rouge is come what may. The idea that we all know life is going to happen, but that doesn't have to make our dedication waver. And so I know it's a love song, right? But for me, it's really this idea that we can choose that regardless of what life throws at us, we can be dedicated. And so I love the message behind that. Great. I love it. And what is one book that you would recommend that has helped you thrive in business? The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. I really love that book. And it's so funny when I give it to people, they're like, why don't you tell me about this? I'm like, I have told you about it 25 times. You didn't apply the slide edge yet, so you didn't know. It really is one of those where people are always like, why didn't I have this sooner? It's one of those books. And really talking about the power of the quiet work that we do when no one's watching and that that's really where all the magic is in life. You know, those moments when you decide to eat the cheeseburger or the salad. (laughs) And the hard part in those moments is that the results are not immediately visible. So it's very challenging for us to stay committed to those, but that slight choice, that's why it's called the slight edge. It sounds like a big bro businessy book. It's not. But that idea that slight movement towards your goal is everything. And it usually happens when no one else is watching. I love that. And that's very powerful. That is what I've heard of. So that is definitely going on my list. Well, Sarah, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or any of your programs? Yeah, well, come on over to sarahwalton.com and that's Sarah with an H. I do have a free gift. Is that cool if I share that with people? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I run into when people are like, I don't know how to do my business is they don't know how much money they need to make in order to feel free. So I have a freedom calculator for you where you can literally figure out what your freedom number is inside your business. And that's just at sarahwalton.com slash freedom. That's it. So you can go there, you can grab that. And behind it, once you figure out your number is a whole bunch of marketing tips and ideas and different ways you can get started on hitting that number as fast as possible with integrity always. And then we do have our YouTube channel where you can see Sarah Uncut, where heaven help us all, I just flip my phone around and we don't quite know what I'm going to say or do, but I do give away a lot of tips and a lot of fun topics on Sarah Uncut. And then we have the podcast, which is Game On Girlfriend. I love it. We will include all of that information in the show notes. And Sarah's YouTube channel is The Business. (laughs) (laughs) We have so much fun over there. I would say definitely check that out. I mean, one of her videos was a game changer for me. That was before our intro call. And so, yeah, check out the podcast channel. Um, Great, great wisdom over there. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. This has been delightful and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I hope so, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me on. This has just been an absolute joy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. If you like this episode, share it with a friend and then join the conversation on social media and let us know what you learned or what resonated for you. Be sure to like, review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Until next week, keep thriving.